Last fall, it was, we started this school year with a basic question. Why did Jesus die? And if you were with us last fall, what we did is we entered into this question by looking at why Jesus died through history. What were the historical reasons, the cultural reasons, the setting of the day? What were the powers that were at play that led Jesus to the cross? We're reopening this conversation again of why Jesus died, but this time we're going to be taking it from a different tack, because what we're going to be looking at instead of the history is the reasons that God had for sending his son to die that stand behind the history. And each week for these next five weeks leading up to Ash Wednesday, we're going to be taking another facet of why God sent his son to die. Now, I know that I say this, and for those of you who grew up in a church circle, you know the answer. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's true. But what happens is that we make that mean something that is so much narrower than the picture that the Bible gives to what Jesus' death accomplishes. Not only so, the biblical witness to why Jesus died is so much more multifaceted than one single answer alone. And so today, we're going to jump into this question of why Jesus died, and we're going to start with something that is so basic that it feels no-brainer. And in fact, it's even going to say banal when I say it. But it's this, Jesus died because God loves you. I know you know that, but I wonder if you do, that God loves you. And when I say that God loves you, understand that I am saying that in contrast to something. I'm saying that in contrast to every conception people have of God, to every image of him put out there, of someone who is distant, cold, hard, harsh, or judgmental. For some of you, maybe even more so, I say this in contrast to any idea that he is sadistic. Jesus died because God loves you. And when someone loves you that much, they will stop at nothing. Nothing of what needs to be done to benefit you. Maybe one of the most famous Bible passages ever known that, again, is so basic it seems banal, but I ask you to consider it again, captures it, I think, beautifully. How this early follower of Jesus puts it, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, that God loved you so much that he gave Jesus to die for you. And what's fascinating to me about this passage that's so 
overlooked by so many is that it doesn't say he loved you. It says he loved the world, which of course includes you. But what's fascinating is that when you see how John uses the concept of the world, the world carries connotation for him that goes beyond what we think, the globe. For John, the world is something that is hostile to God. The world is something that is in defiance to God. The world is even something that John will write elsewhere that Christians should have nothing to do with. But God loves this world, even if it is hostile and defiant to him so much that he sent his son to die. Or in another passage that I want to show you from the same author, and i got to tell you, this one is like so groovy because it's the exact same address. It is the other John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love is the predominant, the prevailing attribute of God. Of all the ways that you could describe God, all the things that would describe his personality, his character, right? All of the attributes that you can come up with. The Bible invites us to see that above all of those, the prevailing, predominant attribute of God is love. No matter what else you read about him in the Bible, no matter what else you perceive about him, in the world, no matter what else you hypothesize about him as you try to make sense of life and all that goes on here, the Bible invites us to see that above all things, what is central to the core and nature of God is love. And the Bible calls this chesed. Now, I want you to um, do this. I, I, want, I want to help you pronounce this today. So say, say esed. Now say, <laughs> now look at the person next to you and say, <laughs> and you smash it together and you have chesed, chesed, chesed kind of defies translation. You'll see it kind of played out in all kinds of ways in the Bible, love, covenantal faithfulness, kindness, mercy. Let me give you the psalm that just, that just describes it so beautifully. The whole thing is couched. It's nestled in this idea of God's love and what he's like. And listen to how it culminates. If you know it, fake it along with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, you're just going to follow. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and... Are you sure? Check. The translations, you King James lovers. <laughs> Surely goodness and chesed will follow me. Goodness and mercy, goodness and love, 
goodness and kindness, goodness and the covenantal faithfulness and loyalty of God. Check the translations and you'll see them play. But the point is this. It's this amazing psalm, isn't it, that just describes rather than defines what God's love tastes like. And all of it building up and culminating into this idea that his goodness and his chesed reigns over all, dominates all, prevails through all, is at the center of who he is and what he does. Or how about this from Joel, who writes, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in chesed. You can see this in the Ten Commandments. When you look at the Second Commandment, or 1B, depending on how you organize them, there's this command that God says, don't make an image Don't make any graven image of anything in the sky above or the earth below. Don't make an image of another God and bow down and worship it. Don't make an image of me because I want you to know me and not a caricature, not a substitute. And then he says this on the heels. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing chesed to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. On a scale of one to a thousand, how much does God punish? Three to four. On a scale of one to a thousand, How much does God love? 1,000. What is at the center of describing who God is? This passage, by the way, reverberates through the Old Testament. You see this this phrase, this, this phraseology again and again. There's this amazing passage. It comes about 14 chapters later in Exodus 34 where, well, they did. They bowed down to a image they made, and God meets out a moment of punishment. Moses comes down from the mountain after writing these very words and sees them worshiping this image, and he gets so ticked that he takes the suckers and he smashes them on the ground. Fourteen chapters later, Moses is up on the mountain again. And God kind of looks at him and goes, you know what, Moses, you broke him, you bought him. Make him again. And what's great in the story is the first time around, like God, like it says in Exodus, God inscribed the Ten Commandments with his fingers. The second time, God is like, no, Moses, you do it this time. Right? I could just see him with the chisel there going, man, man. And he writes him again, and it says that God comes into his midst. And look at what it says. The Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does punish the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
See, for the Bible, God's anger and God's love are not seen as antithetical. And in the Bible, God's punishing and God's mercy are also not seen as antithetical. Any bit more than it's antithetical when a loving parent punishes a child, any bit more than when a loving parent gets angry, any bit more than when a loving parent carries out justice. But the real question is this. When you see God, do you see one who delights in punishing with momentary lapses of love and forgiveness? Or do you predominantly see a loving God who, though occasionally punishes, delights to forgive? Because I'll tell you, the way that you personally answer that question is going to determine everything in how you relate to God. And the invitation of the Bible again and again is to see a God who is predominantly loving, who at his core is best defined by love, who is gracious and compassionate, full of chesed, who delights to forgive. And it invites us that every time we doubt God and his character. We're afraid of God. We start to wonder about what he's really like and why the things may be playing out the way they are. It invites us to trust him in his chesed. Martin Luther would write about times when he would be paralyzed in fear over things like predestination, wondering if God, before the foundations of the earth, decided that he would be sent to hell. He would write about times when he would talk about the gripping fear that would come upon him, about things like hell and knowing that he deserved it. He writes about times when he seems paralyzed within himself by this gripping fear of exactly who he is, and how any kind of God could want or love someone like him. And it would keep him up at night. It would keep him up at night, stirring and turning and filled with anxiety. And he writes that every time he began to fear the unknown God, he would run instead to the God the Bible declares is full of chesed. A God who above all things at his core is love. Jesus died because God loves us. And Jesus went willingly because of his love for the Father. And it didn't have to be that way. I mean, he was under no compulsion to do it. We don't deserve this. I've met many of you. Believe me when I say we don't deserve this. 
Nor should we even expect or assume that a God should be favorably disposed to us. Why should any kind of divine being care about you or me? What are we to them? What are we to him? What what can we give him that makes him need us? But despite it all, he sent his son to die. Out of this overflowing central core of his heart, this love, this love for the world. I want to share a story with you today. It's one that captures it so beautifully. It's by a Catholic author named Matthew Kelly. And he writes this. Imagine this. You're driving home from work next Monday, tomorrow after a long day. You tune in to your radio. You hear a blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of some kind of strange flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but three or four people are dead, and it's kind of interesting, and they're sending some doctors over there to investigate it. You don't think much about it. But coming home from church on the following Sunday, you hear another radio spot. Only they say it's not three villagers. It's 30,000 villagers in the back hills of this particular area of India. And it's on TV that night. CNN runs a little blurb. People are headed there from the CDC because this disease strain has never been seen before. By Monday, when you wake up, It's the lead story. It's not just India, it's Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran. And before you know it, you're hearing the story everywhere. And now they have coined it the mystery flu. The president has made some comment that he and his family are praying and hoping that all will go well over there. But everyone's starting to wonder, how will we contain this? That's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He's closing their borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any of the countries where this thing has been seen. And that's why that night you are watching a little bit, a CNN before you go to bed, and your jaw hits your chest when a weeping woman is translated into English from a French news program. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris... Dying of the mystery flu. It's come to Europe. Panic strikes. As best as they can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms. And then you die. 
Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. Southampton, Liverpool, Northampton, and it's Tuesday morning when the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and all flights from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry, they cannot come back until we find a cure for this thing. Within four days, our nation has been plunged into an unbelievable fear. People are wondering, what if it comes to this country? And preachers on Tuesday are saying it's the scourge of God. It's Wednesday night, and you're at a church gathering when somebody runs in from the parking lot and yells, turn on the radio. And while everyone in church listens to a little radio with a microphone stuck up to it, the announcement is made, two women are lying in a Long Island hospital dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, it seems, this disease envelops the country. People are working around the clock, trying to find an antidote. Nothing is working. California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts, it's as though it's just sweeping in from the borders. And then, all of a sudden, the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure can be found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. And so, sure enough, throughout the Midwest, through all those channels of emergency broadcasting, everyone is, asking, is asked to do one simple thing. Go to your local hospital, your local clinic, or your local doctor and have your blood analyzed. That's all we ask of you. When you hear the sirens go off in your neighborhood, please make your way quickly, quietly, and safely to the hospitals. Sure enough, when you and your family get there late on that Friday night... There's a long line, and they've got nurses and doctors coming out and pricking fingers and taking blood and putting labels on it. Your spouse and your kids are out there, and they take your blood and say, wait here, and if we call your name, you can be dismissed and go home. You stand around scared with your neighbors, wondering what on earth is going on. And if this is, in fact, the end of the world. Suddenly, a young man comes running out of the hospital screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. What, what, what? He yells it again, and your son tugs on your jacket and says, Daddy, it's me. And before you know it, they've grabbed your boy. Wait a minute, hold on. And they say, it's okay. His blood is clean. His blood is pure. We want to make sure he doesn't have the disease. We think he has the right type of blood. Five tense minutes later, out come the doctors and nurses, and they're crying, and they're hugging one another. Some are even laughing and it's the first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week. And an old doctor walks up to you and says, thank you. Thank you. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean. It's pure. And we can make 
the vaccine. As the word begins to spread all across that parking lot full of folks, people are crying and praying and laughing. And and then the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, may we see you a moment? We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor and we need, we need you to sign a consent form. You begin to sign and then you see that the box for the number of pints of blood to be taken is empty. How many pints? And that's when the older, old doctor's smile fades And he says, we had no idea it would be a little child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. But but I don't don't understand. He's He's my only son. We're talking about the world here. Please sign. We need to hurry. But can't you give him a transfusion? If if we had clean blood, we would, but please, will you sign? And in numb silence, you take the pen. And you do. Then they say, would you like to have a moment with him? before we begin. Could you walk back? Could you walk back to that room where he sits on a table saying, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Could you take his hands and say, Son, your mommy and I love you, and we would never, ever let anything happen to you that didn't just have to be. Do you understand that? And when that old doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, we've got to get started. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while he is saying, Dad, Mom, Dad, why? Why have you abandoned me? And then next week when they have the ceremony to honor your son, and some folks sleep through it and some folks don't bother to come because they have better things to do. And some folks come with a pretentious smile and just pretend to care. Would you want to jump up and say, don't you know what my son did for you? My son died for you. Don't you care? Does it mean nothing to you? I have to think God feels like that. Sometimes. Jesus says this 
greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. My son, I'd let us all burn. God, well, you can read it for yourself. John will write. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. I want to invite you to rise and pray the rest of that passage with me. Merciful God, we do not claim to be without sin. We will not deceive ourselves. Let your truth be in us. We confess our sins. You are faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. On the heels, John will write this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat>